we come again is an opportunity and a marvelous privilege it is that we are able to assemble and together this evening at this afternoon hour on this Sunday, the 18th of December. It's a delightful opportunity in many ways and certainly the blessing reaches perhaps its height when we have the privilege of thinking about the worship we are able to offer unto God and as a part of that to give a thought at least for a few moments to some of the things shared in the Holy Word of God. This evening, as you might have noted in the bulletin, the title of the lesson has to do with a rather strange and unusual word, the apocryphal books of the Bible. And you may at least immediately wonder and to question, well, what are such books of the Bible? Maybe we each are familiar with Genesis and with Exodus and on down the list and line. But what are those books? And what might that book be that has a reference to a so-called apocalypse or apocryphal book? It will be our interesting chore, I hope, over the next few moments to give at least a moment's reflection to what these books are and to the nature of what might well be appreciated and seen in them. Psalm 119 verse 89 still reads, as was noted a moment ago, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. That will be a key thought as we move through the study and the concourse of the lesson this evening. By way of introduction, as I hold in my hand at this particular time a book that's not all that unfamiliar to perhaps almost all of us. You may well be holding one very much like it in your hand or in your lap at this moment. It is the Holy Bible. We recognize there are some 66 books contained within it. Those books, beginning with the book of Genesis and numbering through 39 of them, carry one through the Old Testament. And then beginning with Matthew and moving through the 27 New Testament books, one has completed that particular book that you and I cherish and lift so highly. In fact, as we give thought to it, we not only cherish that book, but we love it. We perhaps in haste would be willing to give our life in defense of it. We're convinced that it is the only authoritative Word of God. In fact, in a number of passages, we so easily, easily remember that Job on one occasion said, I have esteemed his words more than my necessary food. Job 23, 12. In Psalm 119, verse 97, the famous and ancient psalmist therein said, Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. In fact, some 37 verses later, we easily appreciate also the psalmist said, Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. And on and on you and I could go, lifting high the banner of what the Scriptures represent and what it is that they carry forth to us. Having said all of that, though, one cannot help, I suppose, but ask. There are sometimes in the mind of some folks additional books in the Bible. In other words, they claim there are more than 66 books in the Bible. And in fact, I hold in my hand another book, the title of which is The Bible with the Apocrypha. This book has more than 66 books in it. And those other books, the so-called apocryphal books, in fact are included in this Bible. And not only are they included, but as one thumbs through and looks at them, I happen to have just opened one of them. It's a book called Sirach, S-I-R-A-C-H. That isn't the only such book in this one. There are others. For the next few moments, what are these books? What do they have to say? Why are they included? but yet they're not included in all Bibles. What might you and I say about them, at least in the brief time that we have tonight? The Apocrypha turn out to be a rather interesting set of thoughts. 
And some of the things that you and I might say about them, in fact, could well begin with this thought. A moment ago, we, with great confidence and with great authority, made reference to 66 books in the Bible, and you and I have grown to love them. We encourage our children to learn their names. We appreciate knowing them in order. We understand how important it is to know at least generally what's in those books and to abide by them. But that always and also leads us to notice that this word apocrypha, that's not that an unfamiliar word to us because the very last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation as you and I know it, the very first word in that book, Revelation 1 verse 1 in Greek is apocalypsos. In other words, apocalypse. And that very word ties at least in meaning to these other books that are included in this Bible. That word apocalypsis or apocalypse means that which is hidden, that which is veiled. And thus it has reference to the unveiling or that which is being revealed. And when we made our study of the Revelation earlier this year, we laid great emphasis upon the fact that the Revelation is the unveiling by Jesus Christ our Lord. As He opens up the scene of history for those to read in that last book in the Bible. But it's that same word that has reference and meaning to these other books because they are hidden or they have been concealed. They have not been shed forth the light that the other 66 books have. It is for that reason, let's be a bit more detailed. There are some supposed New Testament apocryphal books. That is to say, books that some claim ought to be inserted along with our 27 New Testament books. In addition to Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and all those others, some would say there ought to be some additional books. In fact, there are some gospel accounts that some might in fact give consideration to. I've listed a few of them. There's the so-called Gospel of Judas. There's the so-called Gospel of Thomas. There's the so-called Gospel according to the Hebrews. But not only are there supposed additional gospel accounts, there also are additional books called Acts such as the Acts of Peter, and such as the Acts of Paul. That list could be extended considerably further because others might say there are additional books like Romans or like Corinthians or other epistles. In short order, perhaps it would be fair to say, none of those New Testament apocryphal books have ever gained even the slightest bit of interest in terms of putting them on an equal par to the books of the Bible. I've stated it here in these language, although they might have been discussed through the years. There seems to be an exceedingly and very strong conclusion that they are not inspired, that they have no place alongside the other New Testament books in terms of being from heaven. Thus, if one wants to read them, I suppose, for historical curiosity... And if one wishes to refer to them as a matter of gaining some bit of information about what's in them, that might well be good. But in terms of them being opened on the day of judgment, and in terms of you and me being judged by what's in those New Testament apocryphal books, it simply shall not be so. In a few moments, I'll make some comments about some of the nature of why one can conclude that they are not inspired. But to do that, let's talk about the Old Testament Apocrypha first. These have been open to much more discussion. These, in fact, are the very ones that are included in this Bible. 
so-called additional books that are supposedly attached to the Old Testament. It is for that reason, let's spend a bit more time thinking about them. I've highlighted the discussion in the following way. Depending on how these books are counted, there are either 14 or 15 of them. Now again, note with me, there are either 14 or 15 Old Testament apocryphal books. And just so that we're aware perhaps of the character, here are the names of them. There's First and Second Esdras. There's the book of Tobit, the book of Judith. There's the book called the rest of the book of Esther. Additionally, there's the wisdom of Solomon, the book called Ecclesiasticus. Additionally, there's the book of Baruch, the book called the Song of the Three Hebrew Children. There's the history of Susanna, the destruction of Baal and the dragon. There's the prayer of Manasseh. And then finally, there's the books of First and Second Maccabees. Now, as you perhaps give thought to those names, it's easy to see that we are not familiar with them as a recognized part of the Old Testament. Though you and I might be able to name all the books from Genesis to Malachi, none of them fit anywhere in it. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that some of the names of them are fairly common and similar to some of the other Old Testament books, like that book of Ecclesiastes with which we're familiar You'll note here there's a book called Ecclesiasticus. We're familiar with Proverbs containing much about the notable wisdom, inspired, of course, delivered by Solomon. And notice here there's a book called The Wisdom of Solomon. We're familiar with the book of Daniel and the marvelous wonder of its 12 chapters. But we notice here the song of the three Hebrew children, which are those same three that were cast in that very book of Daniel into that fiery furnace. To say all of that is to say, these books are the very ones that's in this Bible. Now, as you might give thought to the character of them, at least for a moment, notice that these books in many ways relate to some historical event that is recorded in the Old Testament. For instance, the prayer of Manasseh is a book that ties directly to 2 Chronicles 33, 12, where there Manasseh entered into prayer, and supposedly this book called the Prayer of Manasseh records the prayer he uttered on that occasion, but which is not recorded in the book of 2 Chronicles. Additionally, that thing I noted a moment ago about these three Hebrew children, supposedly this particular book shares what it is that they said and what it is that they experienced while they were in the burning fiery furnace. You can probably appreciate then with me that those who penned and wrote these books often tied them to a particular biblical event or to a particular biblical person. But that is not to say that they are inspired. In fact, the remainder of our lesson tonight... Let us notice in brevity what might be said about these Old Testament apocryphal books, why they are not in a Bible like this one, and also how some of those same thoughts help us appreciate the New Testament apocryphal books as well. As we look at some of these comments, I've listed them this way. I'd like to share with you briefly five things that you and I might say about them that lead us to conclude that these apocryphal books are not the inspired Word of God, that for one reason or another, they in fact bear all the marks of being written by man. They were not superintended by the Holy Spirit. They were not guided by the inspiration from heaven. 
men wrote them. Reason number one, they were never a part of the Hebrew Old Testament. That's a very significant thing because it was to the Jews, we read in Romans 3 verse 2, to them were committed the oracles of God. In other words, God put in their safekeeping the integrity, the characteristic of consideration of passing on the Holy Scriptures. And never did the Jews consider any of the apocryphal books an inspired and recognized part of the Old Testament. None of them. Every manuscript that has been discovered, and every reference to all of them, and every listing of the Old Testament books according to the Hebrew Old Testament lists only the 39 books with which you and I are familiar. None of these other apocryphal books were ever included. That's a significant thing additionally when we notice that there were times in the Old Testament when the Jews themselves were in great need of being reminded of the integrity, character, and power of the Old Testament Scriptures. For example, in 2 Chronicles chapters 33 and 34, when the book of the law was found as they repaired the temple, they were somewhat amazed by the fact that they didn't recognize what it was. But yet in the chapters that follow, it was a prophet as well as a prophetess who made reference to the fact that that was the Word of God. No apocryphal books included, no instances or references to other things like it. Additionally, it might be noted in Nehemiah 8 verse 1, we have on that occasion laid in Old Testament history an inspired person, namely Nehemiah together with Ezra, who read in the book of the law. They did not read out of any of the apocryphal books. I say all of that perhaps to remind us that the Jews were given the safeguarding treasure and unto them indeed were committed the oracles of God. Not only is that a notable reason, namely the Jews never viewed these Old Testament apocryphal books as inspired of God. Consider with me yet another comment that might well be made. Neither, the G neither Jesus nor any of the inspired New Testament writers quoted or in any way referred to any of the apocryphal books, even though they knew that they existed. These apocryphal books were placed in final form by the time the Septuagint was written in 270 B.C. Thus, long before the Lord was born in Bethlehem, and long before the inspired New Testament writers put into place and into the inspiration of the New Testament, they knew about the existence of these apocryphal books, but yet not one time did they ever quote from them. Not one time did they ever refer to them. That seems greatly significant because when you and I remember that Jesus was the Son of God, He had perfect knowledge about all things including those books. And if they had been inspired, surely He would have corrected the thinking of that day among the Jews that they ought to have been included but yet the Lord never made any kind of statement like that. It is significant, in fact, that in Luke 24, verse 44, the following interesting statement from the lips of Jesus Himself is made. Jesus said, All that hath been written in the Psalms, in the prophets, and in the law concerning Me hath been fulfilled. Interesting, isn't it? The Lord listed on that occasion the three divisions of the Old Testament as you and I know it. There's the section of law, the books of Genesis through Deuteronomy. 
There's the section of the prophets from Isaiah to Malachi, and there's the section of the writings from Joshua on, in fact, to the book of Esther. The Lord listed all of them in large category, all 39. He did not include anything about the books known as the Apocrypha, not even in the slightest hint. I suppose, even though we'll answer it later, one in light of this might begin to ask, then why are those books in this Bible? We'll see if we can explain that a bit later. But for now, we've already seen two reasons as to why. These particular books ought not be viewed as inspired and ought not be viewed as equal to our other familiar 66 Bible books. I would invite you to notice that in Mark 7 verse 37, when the statement is therein made of our Savior, He hath done all things well. If these books like Esdras and Maccabees and Ecclesiasticus and the Song of the Three Hebrew Children and the Prayer of Manasseh, if those had been inspired, and if they were books that shall be opened on the day of judgment, and you and I shall be judged according to them, what kind of light does that shed on texts like John twelve forty eight? He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word, the Lord said, hath one that judgeth him the word that I have spoken. The same shall judge him in the last day. If these books had been inspired, and if they were a part of God's revealed will, and if the Lord did not correct the misunderstanding of the Jews, then was He not guilty of sin because He would have been at fault at not correcting their misapprehension of those books. That seems a conclusive point, doesn't it? that these books are not inspired. Let's look at a third reason. First of all, these books do not present evidence of inspiration. That is no small matter, in fact, to assert. When you and I read books like Matthew and Mark and Luke, or when we read books like Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, we find in those books that have all the hallmarks of inspiration. You might ask, what would some of those hallmarks be? First, they present a united presentation. They do not contradict themselves in any way. Furthermore, they are united with all the other books of the Bible. Furthermore, there are no mistakes in them. The same thing cannot be said about these apocryphal books. There are mistakes in them. Yes, indeed, there are mistakes in them. I've listed, in fact, some of them. One of them, and I quote, reads, Nebuchadnezzar who ruled over the Assyrians. Now that's interesting. You and I immediately, almost off the page, would appreciate there is something wrong with that statement. What is it? Nebuchadnezzar was never a king of the Assyrians. He was the king of the Babylonians. And yet one of these books makes that statement do you suppose that if it's wrong in that sense, it could be wrong in some of its other proclamations as well? You see, there are littered throughout these apocryphal books geographical errors, governmental errors, other errors like the one I just mentioned. You can perhaps also notice with me that there are times that they contradict one or more of the Bible books. I've listed one of them for your consideration. In Sirach, chapter 3, verses 3 and 30, the following statement is made. It is absolutely stated that one finds atonement for sin by what one gives. Now that directly flies in the face of the revelation of Scripture because you and I know the Bible teaches only the blood of Christ 
is able to provide means of remission, forgiveness, and atonement. And yet in this book it says what one gives directly can do that apart from anything else, including the blood of Christ. Again, does it sound as if that kind of book can be trusted? Does it sound as if Sirach was an inspired production of the Holy Spirit? I think it fair to say that because it contains contradictions to the Bible and because it contains mistakes and discrepancies, these books, again, must not be trusted as the inspired Word of God. Let's consider yet another point. These books, you might ask, when were they written? We are aware that Genesis was written by Moses and Malachi was written by Malachi and there's a span of about 1,100 years in the time when those books were written. When were these 14 books written? Every one of them were written, in fact, after the book of Malachi closed. These were written about the 2nd century, 1st century B.C. So, well over 250 years after the book of Malachi, these books came along and were in fact written. I've tried to highlight for you that the typical dates are from 200 B.C. on to 30 B.C. It is interesting that some of the most notable New Testament rabbis who lifted high the banner of Old Testament inspiration because of that fact called into question the presentation of these books. It might be fair for each of us to remember that the Holy Spirit had this to say in 2 Peter 1 beginning in verse 20. As the Holy Spirit described His own efforts and His own work, He said, "...knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation." For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. As the Holy Spirit thus moved various men to record and write what they did, it did not include these books because the Holy Spirit wouldn't have made those geographical mistakes, wouldn't have made those errors in terms of contradiction to the Holy Scriptures. Interesting, isn't it then, that these books, these apocryphal books, lead us to this fifth point. Really, they have always been surrounded with controversy. Despite the fact that they do appear in this Bible, they were not introduced without a strong note of disagreement, and they were not introduced without a strong note of controversial discussion. The Septuagint included these books at first in the Old Testament. And again, they did so without a proper appreciation of the need for introducing them and of the character of them. And once they were introduced by those who didn't do so wisely, they were copied into the translations of the 16th and 17th century really without giving them any additional thought. But as you give appreciation with me to books like the King James Bible. No King James Bible will include them because those translators of 1611 and the years right before them understood that these books were spurious. They were not inspired. They had no place in the sacred canon. Today, Catholics, for instance, will read the apocryphal books. In the Catholic Bibles, you will find these 14 apocryphal books. But there are no Greek Orthodox Bibles that have them. There are no King James Bibles, American Standard or otherwise, along that line. No trustworthy Bible will include these 14 apocryphal books. 
I said earlier that we would at least revisit briefly those New Testament ones and make some comments about them. It too is the fact that they, just like these Old Testament ones, contain features and facts that lead one to believe they are not inspired. For example, they make again mistakes concerning some of the issues of the life of Jesus. They in fact lay great heaviness upon the nature of some miracles, but they go far afield from the character of what the purpose of a miracle was. Again, there has never been much discussion about the inclusion of the New Testament ones, and that's why we've said so little about them tonight. As you close that slide, there are so many verses, and this is just a fractional sampling of the ones that might be listed. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. We have at our disposal 66 reliable, authentic, trustworthy books of the Bible. And it is to them that we shall find all things that lead unto life and godliness. 2 Peter 1 verse 3. No apocryphal book is needed for that. Additionally, one of those other verses listed is in fact this one. It's that text of Psalm 119 verse number 89. Forever, O Lord, Thy word is settled in heaven. God has safeguarded the keeping of the sacred text. And those 66 books are in our reliable Bibles for a reason. It's because that is the authoritative word from heaven. It's to be believed, it's to be studied, it's to be obeyed. These other works, as the works of men, do not have those characteristics. It still is significant that those in Berea were complemented in the following way. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily, whether those things were so, Acts 17, 11. And wasn't it said about those in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 2, 13? For the which cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which effectually worketh also in you that believe. It is significant that when Paul preached in Thessalonica, he didn't quote from Ecclesiasticus. He didn't quote from First or Second Esdras. He didn't quote from the Maccabees. He did quote, though, from 66 books in the Bible. May I submit that as we come near the close of this lesson, that we have the opportunity to give our attention to the books which God has inspired. And though there may be Bibles that have entered additional books, you and I need not worry about them being mentioned on the Day of Judgment. And we need not worry about them being a part of what you and I must be held accountable to. Tonight, what about your life and mine as it relates to the Word of God? In conclusion, these thoughts seem appropriate. We've learned that these apocryphal ones are not inspired, but these books in the Bible are. We must obey these if we are to be pleasing and happy before God. Have you obeyed them? Are you living in a faithful, covenant relationship with our Heavenly Father? If not, why wait another moment? Why wait another day? Today, indeed, is the day of salvation. Read 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. If you have never become a Christian, why not tonight? Jesus said, except you believe that I am He, you shall die in your sins, John 8, 24. Furthermore, the Lord said, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish, Luke 13, 3. 
Furthermore, it was he who said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Mark 16, 16. Have you attended to those things in your life? If you have, thanks be unto God. But are you faithful? If you need to return to your first love, why not do that tonight? Let us pray on your behalf under the banner of 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9. If we can assist you tonight in your obedience to the gospel, would you not let it be known while together we stand and while we sing?